This week's TribCast is sponsored by Texas 2036, building long-term, data-driven strategies to secure Texas's prosperity through our state's bicentennial and beyond. Learn what we're focused on right now at texas2036.org slash blog. And Texas Women's University is focused on making Texas healthier, offering more than 80 health-related degree programs from nursing and physical therapy to kinesiology and nutrition science. Find out more at twu.edu health. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for October 20th, 2021. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Texas Tribune. And this week I am joined by politics reporter Patrick Svitek. Hello. Hey, Patrick. Uh, politics reporter James Bettergon. Hello. And uh, demographics reporter Alexa Ura. Happy Hello, Alexa. shiny die. Happy signy die. Hopefully it's the last time we say that this year. I refuse to believe uh, otherwise. <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, expect the worst and then be pleasantly surprised. That's, that's my general approach. Um, so yes, as Alexa mentioned, we had signy die uh, on Tuesday morning. Lawmakers wrapped up the third special session of the year. Uh, you know, bringing great relief to the three reporters on this podcast and, and, and the editor, myself as well. Um, lawmakers ended the special session having passed new maps for the House, Senate, State Board of Education and Congress. They approved a modest property tax cut and they also passed a bill that restricts transgender student athletes from playing sports on the teams that align with their gender identity, along with other measures that Governor Greg Abbott put on the list. Um, a couple things that did not get passed that were on Greg Abbott's list was a bill banning businesses from having vaccine mandates um, for their employees, or a bill increasing the penalty for illegal voting. And that kind of leaves, I think, the question that we and others are asking right now, which is, are we done here? You know, we've, the legislature has essentially been working for 10 months with a few breaks in between and, of course, a trip to Washington, D.C. for the Democrats. But the question, they've, they have now done everything they have to do. They have done redistricting. They have done the budget. And the question now, is there any appetite whatsoever in, for, um, in Greg Abbott in order to bring these lawmakers back again for a fourth special session? Patrick, what's the, give us the lay of the land here. What's the, what's the feeling? What are you hearing about this issue? Yeah, there have been uh, what I would call some mixed signals um, since they gaveled out early Tuesday morning. Um, as you pointed out, the two big uh, pieces of unfinished business um, were increasing that illegal voting penalty after the elections bill that they passed uh, decreased it. Um, and then also, uh, you know, some kind of legislation that more or less codifies Abbott's recent executive order banning uh, all COVID-19 vaccine, vaccine mandates in Texas. And those are two, you know, particularly um, interesting issues to leave unfinished because they're issues where Abbott is getting um, very serious pressure from his right. And what we've seen this year is he's been responsive to very serious pressure from his right. And so those are, again, you know, they were left undone and they're, they're issues that have a lot of political baggage that kind of go political considerations that go with them. Um, 
You know, Abbott hasn't commented on the possibility of a fourth special session, uh, though he did put out a statement Tuesday afternoon, uh, you know, really lavishing praise on lawmakers for the work that they did get done as it relates to redistricting, COVID-19 relief fund spending, um, and property tax relief. Uh, I believe a spokesperson for his office said there's no plans for a fourth special session, uh, quote, at this time. Um, And, you know, even looking at the, the language from Dan Patrick and Dave Phelan, the House speakers, they were preparing to gavel out early Tuesday morning. Neither of them at that time sounded like they were folks who were anticipating another special session. I think Dan Patrick, you know, wished uh, Happy Thanksgiving and Merry Christmas to the members. Um, Dave Phelan especially, and somewhat understandably, did not sound like someone who had an appetite for another special session. Um, He gave a little speech in which, you know, he talked about how, uh, you know, it's been a very long uh, 10 months of legislating. Um, you know, he said, we're all very tired, want to get back to our communities. Um, you know, and so he, you know, really sounded like he was ready um, not to be back at the Capitol until the <laughs> next regular session. Um, but then we saw uh, this morning, uh, or I guess just a little while ago, it's Wednesday right now, uh, Dan Patrick uh, put out a tweet uh, basically calling for a fourth special session on two issues that increase of the illegal voting penalty that we previously discussed, um, and then also uh, his his own push for what he calls forensic election audit legislation. Um, and that's something that Abbott never even put on the call, the, the audit legislation, despite uh, pressure from former President Donald Trump. Abbott has really put his faith in this election audit that he says the Secretary of State's office is already doing in four of the state's biggest counties, um, which, as Alexa has reported, doesn't seem that much dramatically different from what the Secretary of State's office normally does after um, an election like the one we had in November. Um, and so that's that's an issue that that audit legislation that Abbott continues to show very little appetite for. Yeah, James, I do wonder about kind of both of those issues, whether even if Abbott wanted to get those done, whether there is enough will in the legislature for it to happen. Of course, the vaccine mandates, you had reporting, you know, right before the legislature ended, that it did not seem like there were even enough votes in the Senate for that, let alone the House. Um, and then, you know, the the same thing with the, the illegal voting penalty. I mean, you know, it seems as though Dade Phelan essentially kind of came out and said, you know, this we, we already decided this issue in a prior special session or yeah, the prior special session. Yeah, I'm getting pre- my, uh, my yeah, stuff there. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I do wonder even, you know, I, I think there's a question to ask of kind of what would the point be of a special session if you if you can't get those measures through? And I don't really see much of an indication that, that that's possible right now. Right. And I think that's the question for the governor. Um, if the votes aren't there right now, why even call um, the legislature back into session for another special session round where, where you might lose on, on the subject again. I mean, the thing is that his challengers on the right can criticize him all they want, but it's a very different thing to try to exert um, your political capital to try to get those votes um, in the legislature. The Lawmakers have delivered a lot of victories for the governor over the last year on the transgender student athlete bill, um, the the near total abortion ban. Um, I mean, you name it, constitutional carry. It's been a very, very conservative session. So the governor has really shored up, I think, his credentials with the right, even though that there's even though there's folks and 
um, his challengers in the Republican primary who will continue to criticize him. Um, but for these last three items, he's been very vocal on vaccine mandates, but if he doesn't have the votes, he doesn't have the votes, right? And as Patrick mentioned, the appetite for an election audit doesn't seem to be there from the governor. Um, and so, yeah, and I think also the other thing that the governor has to consider is one, are you going to call them in and just lose on these issues again? And then two, how tired are these lawmakers of doing this for 10 months? There's, there's a lot of fatigue. People were ready to go home, as Patrick pointed out. So that's another question. The other alternative is that the governor can call them into special session whenever he wants. So he gives them the rest of the year off. And as we get closer to the March primary, maybe, he says, you know what, let's give this another go and tries to re-up it then. That's something that I talked to a political science expert about. And he said that would be a good political move for him to do. You don't say no to it, but you just say at a different time. And as Patrick pointed out, the governor has no plans for a fourth special session at this time. That doesn't mean that there couldn't be possibly another one at a different time. Yeah, I feel like at this time in politics is always a phrase that sends like a shiver up your head. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, all, as James, I think, just basically summed up, like all three of these issues we're talking about, the election audit legislation, the illegal voting penalty increase, and the universal ban on COVID-19 vaccine mandates, these are all issues that uh, have encountered very stiff opposition. You do Phelan proposing one, a lot of business groups opposing another, Abbott not even interested in the audit legislation himself. And if he were to call them back for even just one of these issues, it would not be a straightforward special session. It would be a knockdown, drag out fight. This would not be a special session where like, you know, you just get, well, I make gets an Airbnb in downtown Austin for a few days. Like these would be very long and dramatic special sessions. I also feel like, I, I don't know if I'm misremembering this, but it seems to me that in the past Abbott, I guess pre maybe bathroom bill special session was not a huge fan of calling these and talked about lawmakers needing to do their work in the regular and the cost to the taxpayer in calling lawmakers back for a 30 day special session, you know, sort of separate from the politics of it. It seems like it's sort of a departure from like pre 2017 Abbott. And I think secondly, there's also the weird dynamic where, you know, they had to call the redistricting session, right? Sure, he was able to add things onto the call, but it was something that was that needed to happen. You know, you could argue that the first and second special obviously were coming off of the failure of the voting bill. And so they had a kind of pretty clear priority for that. But at this point, even if he called them back in January, it's it's a, it's a session outside of kind of the norm and or outside of the sort of checklist of things that the legislature had set out to do. And at that point, it's just sort of Abbott's priorities. Yeah, I also just have to think that Abbott is a little bit tired of kind of having to answer these questions and and kind of hear these calls from various people for another special session. And, and he might just find it politically beneficial to kind of just get the get the lawmakers, get the legislature out of Austin and, and kind of have this not be at the top of people's mind. I mean, we're talking about Dan Patrick making these calls. He's done this several times this year, um, whether it's adding things to the call or, or now, you know, throwing his support behind another special session. Of course, Don Huffines has come out and basically said he's he would support, you know, or he if he were governor, he would he would call another special session here. And that kind of primary continues to linger. And then 
Also, you know, Donald Trump has done this too. And I do wonder, Patrick, whether, whether Abbott would just kind of like to move on and kind of begin the process of going out across the state and kind of bragging about the, you know, myriad conservative legislative victories that he's going to be touting in the, the run up to, you know, whenever this primary happens. Yeah, I mean, I think he has plenty to, to boast about, um, you know, and I think he does want to move on and, and get on to, to campaigning. Um, but it's just a question of whether he believes it's politically sustainable for some of these things to be unanswered by the legislature. Um, one thing to potentially watch, and I imagine his office is probably talking about right now, is whether any of these issues can be handled uh, with executive uh, action in some way. I don't have any suggestions for him, but we know that this is a governor who has become very comfortable with wielding and, and stretching the bounds of executive power. And so maybe they're, they're discussing, uh, you know, how they handle these things that way. I don't know how exactly they would, but, but, that on, the, but on the, on the vaccine mandate, there's already an executive order, right? Exactly. Yeah. That's yeah. I would definitely break that issue away from what I just said, because he's specifically asking for legislative action on that. Right. Um, and he's, you know, he has said his executive order on that will remain in place until right. the, legislature, the legislature acts. Um, so, you know, that remains in place. Um, so yeah, I think he's, he's probably eager to, to move on from these legislative battles. Yeah, well, I don't know about y'all. Go ahead, Alexa. I, I was just gonna say I don't know about y'all, but I'm very curious about what new legislative session Donald Trump will be pulling up on the live stream now that the ledge has gone home. Because <laughs> turns out he was a very avid watcher of hashtag. I, 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 missed, I missed his. Yeah, I missed his uh, session review. I didn't get that from the desk <laughs> of Donald Trump. Indeed. Well, it's, there's still time. There's still time, particularly after this uh, this call from from Dan Patrick. We saw. I think he's just waiting for the trip cast so he could crib off our notes. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, I think, though, I want to go back to the point that Patrick and, and James just made about the executive order thing, because I think that's a really important point, is that, as you said, nothing really changes, at least in Abbott's eyes, around the vaccine mandate right now. You know, he, I, I know that there could be some potential legal challenges and questioning of his authority to have that order in place. But, you know, as of right now, that executive order stands and that ban, you know, uh, is in place according to the governor's office, and you know he the the election audit is another example of that, right? Like he is basically saying like we don't need the legislature's authorization; we're doing this anyways. So um, you know those I think could be two little arguments. And that's that's a situation too with with the audit where they're doing the you know cursory audit that they're doing their regular review. And then another at this time situation, right? That they're if they find things that are irregular, they correct me if I'm wrong, Alexa or Patrick, but I think they said like if they find irregularities, they'll investigate even deeper, right? So it's another at this time situation. So basically, he's already sort of uh, he's already addressed both of those with executive actions now. Yeah, I mean, I think there there's a setup to where they could basically open up counties for an actual review of ballots, which what the SOS is supposed to do doesn't actually cover. Um, you know, but I think the other thing to consider is that I believe the audit legislation doesn't go into effect until maybe 2026. Uh, I'm sort of misremembering the exact effective date of that. So, and and even if they did come back in like January or February to do the illegal voting penalty, they're not going to get a two-thirds vote on that. So it's not going to go in into effect for about 90 days, which is probably 
past the primary, assuming our primary is not delayed because of redistricting litigation. So even the the timing of some of that legislation, if your argument is that you want it to be into effect to, you know, quote unquote, protect elections or whatnot, the timeline itself doesn't really add up. Right, right. You know, another interesting thing I thought about uh, Dan Patrick's comments, or I guess tweet, uh, right before uh, we we started recording this podcast was the uh, kind of continued attempt to lay the blame for the reduction of the penalty in illegal voting on the House, um, and to basically say, you know, the House made this change, and we need to kind of change back. Of course, Alexa, you have pointed out that that's not really the case, right? I mean, the change originated in the House, but it passed the Senate and was celebrated. I mean, the the larger bill in which that happened was celebrated by the Senate, you know, once it was voted out. Yeah, I mean, he keeps keeps arguing that this was a House thing, even though both chambers not only signed off on the conference committee report that included the change, but then ultimately voted out the bill. And so the, the, you know, it's sort of a weird strategy to me to keep trying to blame the House when in reality that just continues to point out that legislators didn't seem to fully read the bill that they signed off on. Uh, I honestly feel like years from now, we're still going to be learning about things in this bill. <laughs> <laughs> You're probably not wrong. Not <laughs> it feels like. One other just kind of point I want to touch on here is because it's been, you know, uh, we have not had a trip cast since Abbott issued that executive order on the um, vaccine mandates. And and in the aftermath of that, Patrick, you had a story kind of about the 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 perceived influence of Don Huffines and the primary challenge on Abbott's actions uh leading toward this. Can you, can you discuss a little bit about like, you know, what, what you explored in that story and, and whether you, whether that has any impact on, you know, where we go from here? Yeah, I mean, I, I, there's a lot of things that Abbott has done and said uh, over the course of this year that has pretty closely tracked what Don Huffines has demanded of him and what some other of his critics on the right have demanded of him. Um, Abbott's campaign uh, predictably denies, uh, you know, any kind of um, influence that Huffines is having on him. But, you know, the, the, the timelines kind of speak for themselves. I mean, this, uh, you know, after the previous vaccine mandate order that Abbott issued, uh, the Tribune, I think, was actually one of the first first outlets to point out that it still left open the option for private businesses to mandate vaccines for their employers. And Abbott's office told us at the time, confirmed that to us at the time and said, Private businesses don't need the government running their business. Um, Huffines really latched onto that and said, you know, Abbott is, is bragging about banning vaccine mandates, but he's still letting private businesses uh, mandate vaccines for their employees. And so he really hammered him on that. And then Abbott obviously ro- rolled out that new executive order that uh, cured that, at least in, in Huffines' eyes. Um, and so that's just, you know, the latest example of that. But we know that, for example, Don Huffines launched his campaign this spring saying Texas needs to build its own border wall. A couple weeks later, a number of weeks later, Abbott announced Texas would be building its own border wall. We know that Huffines was was very vocal um, about pushing for uh, legislation that would outlaw gender-affirming health care for Texas children. Um, Abbott did not champion that legislation, but after Huffines started banging the drum about it, he sought a, a you know a, an opinion or a ruling more or less from a state commissioner declaring that kind of care as child abuse. Um, and the list goes on. I mean, the same day that Abbott issued this 
vaccine mandate uh, ban um, that followed Huffine's demands. The same exact day, there was a Houston Chronicle report, you know, where they got some public records showing that a state agency took down a, a webpage with, uh, you know, resources for LGBT youth, uh, basically in response to Huffines criticizing Abbott over it. And so, um, you know, some of these actions is pretty, it's pretty clear there's a link between what Huffines is, is talking about and what the state is, is responding to. Yeah, very good. All right, let's pause for a minute and hear from our sponsors. Philanthropy advocates work to advance education policy, cradle to career, is more important than ever. Learn more at philanthropyadvocates.org. And Educate Texas. Educate Texas stimulates creative solutions to key educational challenges throughout the state. Learn more at edtx.org. Okay, so we mentioned that the must-pass piece of legislation from this most recent uh, special session, or I guess the most must-pass pieces, because it's multiple, are the redistricting bills for the state, house, senate, Congress and State Board of Education. Those are all headed towards Abbott's desk now. We assume, have no reason to believe otherwise that he will sign them. But the the journey kind of just begins, right, Alexa? I mean, now we are talking about, you know, presumably legal fights and, and questions about, you know, whether these will be uh, passed muster in, in order to allow for a, a primary to, to run in March as scheduled. Can you, Alexa, walk us through kind of what we should be walk, watching in the coming, you know, weeks, months, uh, in, in the years, continued possibly. Yeah, years, <laughs> exactly, decades. Well, you know, the in the legal fight has already begun over these maps, and you know, so the 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 bigger picture though is, you know, lawmakers had this responsibility to redraw these maps. Obviously, we had the 2020 census behind us. That growth needed to be incorporated into these maps. Once again, lawmakers have drawn maps that you know, are both not reflective of the state's demographic, but in many in many areas of the state actually diminish the power of voters of color. And so, you know, like last decade, it will be up to the federal courts to kind of decipher whether Republicans did this based on partisanship, which is allowed, and to sort of boost their majority and their control of the state, or whether in doing that, they actually discriminated against voters of color. Obviously, this is a state where politics and race can't really be separated. You have white voters who tend to vote for Republicans, voters of color who tend to vote for Democrats. And so the line between political discrimination and racial discrimination is, is very thin. And we probably won't know whether the courts believe that the te- that Texas crossed that line for quite some time now, um, or quite some time from now. So. You know, there's already been a lawsuit filed. You have a, a coalition of Latino voters and organizations that advocate and represent Latinos who have, uh, they filed a lawsuit in the Western District uh, in El Paso and basically, you know, alleging that these maps are intentionally discriminatory, that lawmakers relied on race too often in drawing districts that would benefit them politically. Uh, that they also, you know, obviously shunned any opportunity to create new districts that Hispanics would control. And that we are expecting a flurry of other lawsuits probably right around when Abbott signs these. So, you know, we we are officially shifting to the legal part of this, the the federal court part of this. And we're going to be here for, for a good while. The first question will be, do these lawsuits mean anything for the primary that we're supposed to hold in March? 
if I were a gambler, I would say that we probably won't be having primaries in March, but we'll have to sort of wait and see how the next few weeks shake out in the courts. Sure. James, what stands out to you about, you know, now that this, the process of at least drawing the districts is done, you know, politically or, or otherwise, what, what do you think is the, the big kind of takeaway from the, the redistricting process here? Uh, I mean, two, two major things. One is that it was a, a in, incumbent protection plant, really all of them. Um, I think all four can be labeled uh, incumbent protection plans, meaning that instead of trying to run up the numbers in terms of the partisan um, uh, margins between Democrats and Republicans, uh, Republicans just opted for um, keeping safe districts for current uh, Republican incumbents, and in some cases, Democratic incumbents, when it worked to both parties' advantage. Um, so I think that's the first thing. And they did that really because um, all the stuff that Alexa has reported on over the last decade, just the demographic growth of people of color in Texas is such that they're going to continue to grow. They're going to become a larger portion of the population. Um, and they tend to vote for Democrats. So they try to draw seats that were as safe as possible for Republicans um, to control for that growth. The second thing, and that this leads to my second thing, is the lack of uh, opportunity districts for people of color, uh, specifically uh, Latinos, because they drew they drove 50% of the growth in the state of the 4 million people that we added over the last decade. And so to not have even one additional opportunity district for Hispanics um, seem like a, a glaring omission. And I think that's the point that we're going to hear a lot in, in federal courts and in, in our in three judge courts. And, and we're going to hear a lot about jingles factors, Alexa. So it's, it's that time. <laughs> it's that time. It, it really is. But, you know, it, again, the, the, this started so like we, this has already started, right? I think one of my, big takeaways from the last few weeks as Republicans were moving these maps along was the extent to which it seemed like they felt the courts were on their side. You know, if you watch some of these floor debates, when they would oppose proposals by Democrats to create new opportunity districts, for example, the opposition, I don't even know, we can call it opposition beyond saying vote against this because there wasn't, there wasn't really sort of substantive arguments that the Republicans were presenting for why they didn't want to do this. It was sort of just like, we don't approve of this. So we're going to all vote no, you know, all these sort of party line votes. And, and this is normal for the legislature, right? It's it's so divided that you can sort of guess the vote of every amendment and every bill kind of going into it. But when with something like this, where your where representation is at stake, where the population of voters of color will only continue to grow, and going into a federal a federal court battle in which they no longer have pre clearance that sort of federal protection that kept Texas maps from going into effect before they were made sure to not be discriminatory. You know, it it was just kind of it was re it was really really bizarre to sort of watch these debates and and really realize that there was no real argument that Republicans were presenting in many cases against creating more representation for voters of color and and I anticipate we'll see some of that play out in the federal courts as well. And and one more thing that was really um, noteworthy, I think, and Alexi, you and I have talked about this um, at work, uh, but I think you've also pointed out in your reporting, but the 
the notion that not only were they drawing these race blind, but also that to take race into consideration as the Latino redistricting task force did in trying to draw a Latino opportunity district in the Senate in Dallas-Fort Worth would have been a racial gerrymander in and of itself. Uh, that was such a strange argument to me, uh, trying to argue that the creation, using race to create an opportunity district for Latinos in Dallas-Fort Worth would, been, would have been a racial gerrymander of itself. That was sort of a head-spinning argument, I thought, and it, it was very noteworthy to me, to, to your point, just how confident they are that the courts are on their side. And, and so I guess we will see over the next like, couple of years here. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that throughout throughout the debates of the last month, there seemed to be sort of a, a disregard and or misunderstanding of the federal law that sort of that still holds when designing these districts. Right. Like you said, you had that response about calling that opportunity district a racial gerrymander, even though the courts say that you are supposed to use race in creating those opportunity districts, that it's OK to do that. Uh, there was obviously over on the House. Todd Hunter, the the chief, uh, the the lawmaker who's leading that process, looking at voting age population instead of citizen voting age population, even though the citizen version is the one that the courts will use to determine if these are, you know, real opportunities for voters of color. And in the first lawsuit that was filed last week by, was that last week, maybe earlier this week, by MALDEF, they point that out. They specifically point out both the race-blind comments that were being made in the Senate and this idea of using the wrong measure to talk about whether these maps did or did not pull back on opportunities for voters of color. And, you know, I, it, it's... I think we're going to be hearing the word CVAP a lot for we were going to either way, but the way that it has been introduced and the way that the term colorblind or race one has been introduced during this debate is something we're going to be talking about for, for many, many years, I think. Yeah, James, talking about this, uh, you guys obviously spent a lot more time watching these debates and sitting in these committee hearings than I did. But uh, one thing of the glimpses that I caught of this process that will stick to me was uh, late Saturday night when they were considering the congressional maps in the House, when uh, Rafael Anchia, a Dallas member of the House, came forward with an amendment to create a Hispanic opportunity district in the Dallas-Fort Worth region. And as you have pointed out previously on this podcast, the Dallas-Fort Worth region has never had a Hispanic member of Congress representing it. And that despite being, as the lawmakers in the chamber pointed out that night, the Hispanic population in the Metroplex is over 2 million. It's larger than the entire population of New Mexico, for example. And, you know, they brought this forward. They, they made their argument for why they felt that there was a need for Hispanic opportunity district there. And the, the Republican argument against it, uh, brought by Representative Jatan, um, who I believe is, is from the Houston area, um, saying basically creating this district would pull Hispanic voters out of an adjacent demographic district. And that was the reason, um, the reason for voting that down. And there was a certain amount of kind of um, exasperation um, and frustration being voiced by the, um, the Hispanic Dallas area representatives um, to that argument. Um, and it was quite a striking back and forth where uh, Jatan kind of felt, seemed sort of exasperated, almost at a loss for words about what to say, but then, you know, walked away from the microphone and, and the amendment was immediately voted down. And, um, you know, in a lot of ways that felt like a very emblematic 
um, example of kind of how this whole process um, happened. You know, one other thing that has really struck me, and I, I want to bring this up mainly because while we've been recording this, um, some news came out about this was um, particularly in the drawing of the Senate maps. One thing that has really stuck struck me was the extent to which Dan Patrick has further worked to kind of grow his power and his influence over that chamber um, in a way that he already is so influential, so powerful, and you know has a hand in so many of these votes. Um, but you saw kind of in these new districts that he drew, you know, um, a district that that seemed in a lot of ways to to be uh, set up for Pete Flores, for example, a former senator. And then Pete Flores announces that he's going to run, and then Dan Patrick immediately endorses him. And we saw that in a couple other districts. Um, we saw, you know, a concern raised by Senator Kel Seliger, the Amarillo senator, Republican, really the one Republican by far most likely to kind of go against Dan Patrick in some issues. His district, um, you know, seemed to be drawn in a way that would make a difficult primary for him. And, you know, as this podcast is being reported, recorded, has now announced that he's not running for re-election. And, you know, it is, it, it almost seemed like it would have been hard for him to further secure his kind of influence and power in that chamber. But here we are, and, and if things kind of go according to plan for the Republicans and these maps go into effect and these elections go the way that Dan Patrick is hoping he is, you know, he will have, I feel like, even further tightened his grip on that chamber, which is, has been kind of fascinating to watch. Yeah, that's certainly true. With, with Kel Seliger um, retiring, Absolutely. there will be... There will likely be uh, there will likely be a, a a another Republican who is more in line with Lieutenant Governor Patrick's um, views. Um, he'll have a, a willing ally, I think, if Pete Flores wins that seat um, in in twenty four. Um, but all this that we're talking about, this is why the federal lawsuits are so important, right, Alexa? I mean, if if those lawsuits succeed um, in proving that there should have been at least one, potentially two Latino opportunity districts drawn into this Senate map, then that can change a lot of things because when you change the configuration of one district, that's gonna affect the rest of the districts around it. And it could potentially affect much of the map really, especially if you have like a, like the Latino redistricting task force had their um, proposal for a, a, a Hispanic opportunity district in Dallas County. And that was just one version of the map. I'm not sure, Alexa, if you know if they have other ones, but they turned that around pretty, pretty quickly. Um, and I know Roland Gutierrez had, uh, I think his version had a multiple, maybe three more Hispanic opportunity districts. So that is what's at stake here, really. Um, there could be changes if these lawsuits are successful and that would change the political dynamics in the upper chamber. Yeah, I believe that lawsuit asks for two additional or or argues that there could have been two additional Hispanic opportunity districts in the Senate map. And, you know, I think that for as many folks that we're seeing retire, um, you know, Kel Seliger being one of them now, there are also a lot of folks who are sort of pinning their hopes on on the new maps. And the reality is that the new map, we don't know if those are going to be the actual new maps. And there is a lot of, there are a lot of, there are quite at least a few sort of political futures that could be derailed by what happens in the courts in the next few weeks and months. Absolutely. 
Well, we will be keeping an eye on all of that. I think we are at the end of our time here, but thank you to Patrick, James, and Alexa. Thank you to our producer, Michael Ray, and thank you to our sponsors, Texas 36, sorry, Texas 2036, Texas Women's University, Philanthropy, Ad, Philanthropy Advocates, and Educate Texas. We'll talk to you all next week. Whatever you